following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. So let's jump into Hebrews again. My wife told me this last week that at the rate we're going, we will have spent nine months in the book of Hebrews by the time we're done, which is about six months longer than I had anticipated. Uh, But nonetheless, it's deep waters. So there is a dude named Aristides who lived about 125 AD. He was a philosopher who converted to Christianity. And at one point, he was writing to the king about what characterized the early church, the early group of Christians. And this is a little bit to read here, so stick with me. And I looked this up, and there's every reason to believe this is legitimate and not some weird kind of forgery that's floating around. But this is his observations about the early church. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and earth, in whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as companion, from whom, just to note, this guy knew how to use who versus whom. From whom they received commandments which they engraved upon their minds and observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Wherefore, they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother. They show kindness to those near to them. Whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. And whatsoever they would not that others should do to them, they do not to others. Golden rule. And of the food which is consecrated to idols, they do not eat, for they are pure. And their oppressors, they appease or they comfort, and they make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. And their women, O king, are pure as virgins, and their daughters are modest, and their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness in hope of a recompense to come in the other world. Further, if one or other of them have a bondman and bondwoman or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. Uh, in other words, if I understand this correctly, those to whom they are indebted, they convert. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, that is, pay the money to set him free, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Before we go further, that one set me back. And if you saw the little video blurb, I made a comment about that. Don't let this body fool you. I like food. And the idea that I would live in a church community where if there was someone else in this church community that did not have enough food, 
that I would simply stop eating for two to three days and take the food that I was going to eat and give it to them or take the money from my food and give it to them, that sets me back. Does it set you back a little bit? How, I'm not going to do a raise of hands. This, this really just caught my attention this week. Would I really give up my food? And it sure looks like perhaps it might have been a family endeavor that I just wouldn't eat for two or three days because someone I know didn't have food to eat. My wife and I were talking about it this weekend in a slightly different scenario because where we live here in Traverse City, the odds of someone not finding food is pretty slim. There's a lot of organizations that help out, but that's not true all around the world. But we were both like, what if someone would come here and would really need a vehicle? In fact, they would need two vehicles for a weekend. Would we offer to give them both of our vehicles and just sit at home for the weekend? And maybe we'd have to rely on other people if we needed to go do something. Would we just loan them our vehicles for a weekend and be stuck without? And we both were kind of like, oh, that'd be really hard. But would it? I mean, it'd be inconvenient. I don't know. Does this kind of, is this a sobering thing? Like, whew, I like to think of myself as generous, but I really wonder, deep in my heart, do I have the kind of love where I am willing to pay at great cost to serve those around me? Would I go hungry for three days just so someone else wouldn't have to go hungry? Let's keep going. They observed the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and every hour they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness toward them. And for their food and their drink they offer thanksgiving to them. And if any righteous man among them passes from the world, they rejoice and they offer thanks to God and they escort his body as if he were setting out from one place to another near. So I think Aristides is simply observing what Hebrews 13, verse 1 says. Let brotherly love continue among you. So brotherly love is a Greek word, Philadelphia, which is where Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is called the city of brotherly love. There's a connection there. It's simply a word that means love as you would treat a family member. And I recognize, like we said a couple weeks ago, I don't know what your family experience was. Maybe your experience of how siblings show love for their brother or sister, maybe that was a bad experience. So the Bible is asking us to enter into this ideal kind of experience where we're surrounded by people, we're in a family who radically love for us. So if my sister would say, Anthony, my family needs food, would I give up my family's food for a couple days so my sister's family could eat? That, to me, makes a lot of sense. It's my family. But, but the author of Hebrews here is calling us into the reality that in this church, we're family now. That kind of love is supposed to characterize our love for each other, not just people related to us by blood or by biology, but now people related to us as brothers and sisters in Christ that's the kind of thing we're called to. And this verse, let brotherly love continue, it comes right after the verse we finished with last week. God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. 
which on the surface seems like a weird change of pace. But we talked last week about this idea that God is a consuming fire means one of the things God is going to do in us when we give our life to him is purify us. Take out the stuff that is unholy. Take out the stuff that's unrighteous. God's going to do a work in us. As children of God, God's fire is not a consuming fire that destroys us. It's a purifying fire that brings the gold out in us. The next verse is, let brotherly love continue. I suspect that is step one of the purifying process. The one of the ways God brings to the surface the selfishness and the sinfulness and the unholy things in our life is by immediately saying, okay, you're in a community of brothers and sisters in Christ now. Watch this. And now this purification process begins as we love each other. I was trying to think of some ways to say this this week, and I was just writing down, uh, see if any of these stick with you. It's just a couple different ways to say the exact same thing. Purification inside us will change our focus around us. As we see the world in new ways, we will act in new ways. Doctrine leads to duty. Belief announces itself in behavior. Or to summarize them all, people will know who and what we love when they see who and how we love. So Romans 1 through 12 so far has been a lot of theology, a lot of discussion about God. What is God like? And over and over we're hearing Jesus is just so much better than all these other things that you in some sense almost worshipped. Jesus is better. So 12 chapters that simply focuses on getting God right. And then the last chapter says, okay, now that we've got that foundation in place, now that we've got the doctrine, let's talk about the duty. Let's talk about what life looks like when we really grasp who Jesus is and really give our lives to him. So really, all of chapter 13 is a list of what our life looks like as God transforms it. And I'm not going to do the whole list today. I'm just going to do the next two verses. Don't forget to extend your hospitality to all, even to strangers. For as you know, some have unknowingly shown kindness to heavenly messengers in this way. It's probably a reference back to some stories in Genesis. Remember those imprisoned for their beliefs as if you were their cellmate and care for any who suffer harsh treatment as you are all one body. So this isn't a new concept in the New Testament. Starting in the Old Testament, God has revealed over and over to his people, it is very, very important that as you represent me in the world, you show kindness, you show hospitality, you show God's love to you by showing this love to others. So I'm just going to give you a couple places in the Bible we read this. Starting with the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.34, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, because you were strangers or aliens in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God gives justice to the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the foreigner by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for them, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Job says, the stranger has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. So in the Old Testament, this was just a clear, ongoing command from God. Because you have received love and generosity, a time from others, but ultimately from God, you must pass this on to others. 
We jump to the New Testament, and the following passages I'm going to read, they use the word Philadelphia, except for one place, and I'll point that out. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Outdo yourselves in honoring one another. As to love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In this verse, it goes from Philadelphia, brotherly love, to agape, which is the one we talk a lot about, the kind of love the Bible says God shows to us. Notice this verse basically makes no difference. It says, as you were taught by God to agape love, so you pass on Philadelphia love. Jesus, in one of his parables, says, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. First Peter, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without complaint. Last one, also from First Peter. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love for each other, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been reborn, not of a plant seed which is perishable, but a spiritual seed that is imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. I planted my garden yesterday. Well, Sheila and I planted our garden yesterday. I'm planting in that garden perishable seeds. They're going to last one year, and then they're going to die. But even those perishable seeds bring new life. What the author in 1 Peter is talking about is God plants something inside of us, but that doesn't perish. It's a new life that now starts and then continues into eternity. And as he's talking about that, he talks about fervently loving one another from that kind of heart. So the, the passage we're looking at in Hebrews today, I think, is specifically about showing that kind of love to people who are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But the overall narrative of the Bible makes clear we show that to everybody. That's part of the way God reveals his love for the world to the world. As his people who have received his love pass that love on, people see something about the God who we claim has done a work in us. And just as Jesus has loved us, even when we don't deserve it, we pass on love to others, even when they don't deserve it. I was listening to uh, David Brooks do a podcast this week, and he told a story, and I wish I could remember the name of the person in this story. Uh, there was a woman who had a, a good career going as a professional. Uh, one night she was walking home through a rough section of town, and two young boys around the age of 13 shot her in the face as she survived. And the thing that stood out to her was that as these two boys looked at her, what she saw in their eyes was not hatred, she saw fear. And it turned out what was happening was it was a gang initiation rite. In order to enter the gang, they had to go shoot somebody. And they didn't want to, they were terrified, but they did it. She recovered, and when she recovered, she scrapped her vocation, her profession, and dedicated her life to going back into that kind of community and reaching out to the kind of kids that shot her. So she did. Fast forward a few years later, 
in her home on any given weekend about 40 gang members, just youth who were high risk in that community, would just hang out at her house. She fed them. Some of them slept there. She was like the center port of this community for these at-risk youth. Now, one day she asked one of these boys, she said, why do you hang out with a middle-aged woman on the weekends? And they said to her, because you're the only one who will open the door. And man, that, that settled into me this last week. Because I, I thought, I wonder how people experience the church in the United States. Are we the place that will open the door? I wonder how they experience us individually as followers of Christ. Are we the kind of people who will open the door? Or are we the kind of people that when, when others see us, they look at us and perceive us as correcting bar erecting barriers or shutting the door or trying to keep people at a distance who might be uncomfortable, who might be at risk, who might cost us something? God forbid that we not be the people who are known for opening the doors of our home and our church for those who need the salvation and the healing and the forgiveness of Christ. Listen, we opened the door for you. Are we tracking? We opened the door for you. You opened the door for me. We dare not shut the door that was opened for us. Now, we have to apply wisdom to this in our lives. I talk individually now. It, it can't mean all the time for everybody. We couldn't sustain that as individuals. But it has to at least mean some of the time to somebody. It probably means we must be willing at all times to show hospitality and concern to someone in some way. And it almost definitely means it will cost us. So if you pick up my notes, I have some footnotes. Even the early church, as they talked about what it looks like to extend this kind of radical hospitality, they had some guidelines in place. They wanted to make sure that charlatans weren't coming in and taking advantage of people. So they, they had some structure. This wasn't an unstructured generosity, but it was a radical generosity. And it was one that they did buying people out of prison. Uh, this would typically have been for a debt in that case. I mean, practically speaking for us, that would be like uh, if I would go to jail because I owe $20,000 and I can't get out till I pay $20,000. And you as a church would go, well, that's not acceptable. And you would all pitch in and take offerings till you got $20,000 and get me out of jail. And it might mean not going out to eat or buying that coffee or putting off, you name it. But you would all look at this and go, we're family. How would I not help Anthony pay his debts and get out of debtor's prison? We don't have debtor's prison in the United States today, right? But you get my analogy? I mean, would we do that? The, the pocketbook is always uncomfortable. This is a hard calling, a hard calling. As I was reading commentary on this this week, I found something from a guy named A.W. Pink, and his first two initials are amazing. Anthony Weber, A.W. 
He said, brotherly love is a tender plant which requires much attention. If it be not watched and watered, it quickly wilts. It's not native to the soil of fallen human nature. Titus says we tend to be hateful and hating one another. And that's a solemn description of what we are without Christ. Yet, or yes, brotherly love is a very tender plant and quickly affected by the cold air of unkindness, easily nipped by the frost of harsh words. If it is to thrive, it must be carefully protected and diligently cultivated. So it's a mindset. It's a reconfiguring of our hearts and our souls. It's us looking to Christ and going, I cannot believe that out of your gracious love and kindness and generosity, you gave your life so that I could live. You gave love to me when I didn't deserve love. You brought me into your family, me. You adopted me in. Amazing. Now what? Oh, we pass it on. We reflect and we pass on that love that God has given to us. If Christ's love for us is radical, our love for others is radical. If Christ's generosity to us was shown when we didn't deserve it, our generosity to others is shown even when we think they don't deserve it. If God opens the home of heaven for us, what do we do with our homes? just to give people a glimpse of this? It's okay, you could say it. We open them up. Right? Am I missing something? We open up. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I might make it through this today. I want to talk first about how we can lose brotherly love. And then I want to talk about how we keep it. And I think I'll probably go relatively quickly through these categories. You can come to Message Plus afterwards and we could talk more about them. But first of all, we could lose this through destructive theology. So once again, Hebrews 1 to 12 reminds us, you got to get God right. And one of the reasons you have to get God right is because if we misunderstand God, we misunderstand what God is like. So let's look at brotherly love. If I misunderstand the love of God, I'm probably not going to understand what it looks like to pass on the love of God. Does that make sense? Like, if I think of God's love as too weak, the love that I pass on will be a weak kind of love. And my one comment about this, and once again, we could talk about this for an entire sermon, but we'll sometimes look at Jesus' life as recorded in the Gospels. And we'll see how Jesus interacted with people. And we'll find one way he interacted with one person or one group of people and go, oh, that is what love looks like. But we have to see all of the entirety of Jesus' life because Jesus applied wisdom into different situations. Some people need to be loved in this way, uh, bluntly, maybe even harshly at times to get their attention, but not everybody does. Other people just need an arm around them. And you just need to sit with them, right? So understanding the full message of the gospel, understanding the fullness of Jesus' life, we need to get God right so that we can get people right. We get his love correct so that we can love well. Number two, we can lose brotherly love when we take what we've called open-handed things and have them divide us. So closed-handed things for a Christian are those things you grab a hold of and you don't let go. Jesus was God in the flesh. 
Jesus lived, died, rose again physically. And because of that, we know that our sins can be forgiven. We know that Jesus has the power to do that. We know that there is a world to come and we can live forever with him and in the company of the saints. There's, there's things like that that as a Christian you hold to and don't let go. But there's lots of other things that we hold in an open hand. That is, I've read the Bible, I have an opinion, but if I disagree with another Christian about those things, we can agree to disagree. They aren't hills we're going to die on. When I was growing up in my church community, I observed two church splits. One was a question over end times issues. When will Jesus come back? Will there be... Um, tribulation here or here? Is the millennium now? Is it later? And churches would split over that. That is foolish. It's just foolish. Jesus will return. Close my hand around that. How and when? I don't know. I've got some ideas. But brothers and sisters, you can disagree with me and we're good. Right? The other thing they uh, separated over was coverings. So I grew up Mennonite. Women's were covering. Women's. Women is a sufficient plural. Women were coverings. Uh, there was a church that split over the size of the coverings. Yeah. But, you know, we do, we, we run a tendency. We may not split as a church, but we'll split within the church over silly, foolish things that, sure, hold it. Hold it loosely. Agree to disagree. Be clear about this. You can go to our church website and look at our statement of faith. And you could see the things that we believe you have to hold like this. But boy, the, one of the beautiful things that the, with the Bible is that on a lot of things, it gives us room to wrestle together on these issues. I tend to think that's purposeful. I think it's so we'll engage, so we'll have conversation. So we keep going back to each other going, really? Maybe I got this right uh, or wrong. Maybe you got this wrong. Let's talk. And it's part of the ongoing life of the church. Number three on how to lose brotherly love is unreflective character or unsurrendered character. Uh, all I mean by this is we have got to grow up. Immaturity and selfishness are going to poison the church. But here's the reality. You need me to grow up. You need me to be mature. Why? Well, for one, I'm up here and I'm, I'm teaching from the Bible. Dear God, if I don't have maturity, we're all in trouble. At least maturity of some sort. Right? I'm tempted to make all kinds of jokes about my maturity, but I'm not. We're just going to move on. But part of that maturity, a part of assessing my character, what I mean by that really specifically is... As people interact with me and they give me feedback about who I am and how they experience me, am I willing to grow up? If someone says, Anthony, this area of your life, you, this is not surrendered to Christ. This is causing problems in your, your family at home and your family at church. Am I willing to hear that and swallow hard and go, okay, time to grow up, time to move further into maturity, or am I going to reject that? Right? You, you need me to grow up. You could just amen that so you feel comfortable. Okay. And I wanted you to do that because I need you to grow up. 
right? It's more than just an individual thing. It's not just about me as this isolated person being mature. I want to be mature in Christ, not just for my sake, but for the sake of my wife and my kids and for your sake. And I desperately want you to desire that too for our sake. So we can't settle for an unreflective or an unsurrendered character. Number four, on how we can lose brotherly love, we can look for offense. Uh, some people just seem to thrive on conflict. Like if there's not someone out there or something out there to be angry about, they don't know what to talk about, their life loses focus and meaning. There has to be an enemy to fight. As other people are just determined to hear what you have to say in the worst possible way, they'll never give you the benefit of the doubt. They'll misread your words in the worst way possible. They'll misread your presence in the worst way possible. If they're going to default, uh, they'll give you the detriment of the doubt, not the benefit of the doubt. That, that kills community. It, it's one thing to reach an assumption about what someone said or how someone must be feeling about you. I think we'll automatically do that. I'm not sure if we can control that but we can't control what we do with it. I can go to someone and say, did you mean to say this? Because that's what I heard you say. Did, you gave me a look. Are, were you angry with me? It felt like you were angry. Can we clarify? Rather than walking away from people or situations and just assuming the worst about what someone said, that festers conflict. It festers unhappiness. It festers unforgiveness. So that was number four. Number five, that can break brotherly love is when we, we have gifts or talents and skills and we either use them to kind of display ourselves or be really happy with the power that we have or the opposite of that is we get really envious with people who have something we don't. So I would just phrase it this way. If you show up into church community and you need people to know how amazing you are, that's going to be a problem. Why, when we gather here, we're gathering here because who is amazing? Jesus. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not here because any of you are amazing. I'm here because Jesus is amazing. You're not here because I'm amazing. You're here because Jesus is amazing, right? Okay, so the second part of this is if we can't actually stand how amazing other people are, that's a problem too. What I mean by that is we see someone else who has a talent or a gift or a skill. They have something we don't have that we, we want to have. And we see that they're flourishing. And people respect them and admire them. And, and rather than looking at them and applauding what God has given to them and how they're using it, we get resentful. Like, why didn't I get that? This is ridiculous. People noticing them and not noticing me in the same way. Right? We get envious. So there's two extremes to this. We don't show up to be seen in that way. But when we see people who are, we, we applaud them. We don't get envious of who they are. Number six, self-centeredness. If you show up every Sunday only thinking what's in it for me today, I can promise you a lot of disappointment. Because, friends, hear me carefully, church is not about you. It's for you, but it's not about you. Who is church about? Jesus. Yeah, yeah, church is about Jesus. 
Now, church is for you. I'm going to get to that in the things that we can do to build brotherly love. There's something to be said about the value of being here together. And part of that value is that God's people minister to you. But church is not planned. Church isn't planned around Paul Cashel. Church is for Paul Cashel. But it's not about Paul Cashel. Now, substitute your name. That's the idea. Number seven, things that can break brotherly love is unchecked sin. Now here, I'm not talking about simply struggling with sin. We all struggle with sin. Nobody's perfect on this side of heaven, right? That's part of the rhythm of our life together in community is repentance and forgiveness, extending grace like I talked about earlier. The love and grace God gives to us, we pass on to this room full of messy people. By unchecked sin, I mean simply settling into something that you know God is convicting you about and you go, you know what? I'm good with this one. I'm good with this sin in my life. It's fine. No one will know. It'll just be about me and my sin. But here's the reality. Sin is never personal. Sin is always communal. Sin is always communal. Even if nobody else in this room knows the sin that you are doing, the sin that you are doing is forming you, and then you come into this room, and now you interact with other people as a person whose sin is forming. That means sin is communal. Does that make sense? Okay, so as followers of Christ, we understand we won't be perfect on this side of heaven. But part of the introspection of our lives is Am I settling into patterns of sin? Because if I am, it's no longer, once again, just about me. This has implications for the church in general. And then finally, and we aren't going to finish my sermon today. Number eight for how to lose brotherly love is simply aloofness. So Philadelphia, this word has to do with uh, friendship in some ways, just really, really deep friendship. It's not that far removed from agape. How does that begin? That simply begins in getting to know people. Just rubbing shoulders with others, introducing yourself, saying hi, having coffee or meals together. And it's not like we all have to be extroverts. I get that. I'm not suggesting everyone uh, looks the same as they reach out and build community. But let me be clear about what I believe is part of this command of brotherly love. Part of this command of brotherly love is simply being nice. And simply getting to know people. And a very practical way is on any given Sunday, when you walk into our church building, do you make it a habit to try to find someone that you don't regularly talk to, or someone maybe you've never talked to, and go out of your way even just to say good morning and shake a hand? I'm not asking you to make new besties. I'm just, I'm just saying, when you come here on a Sunday morning, it, it can be a, a really self-centered time, or it can be a time where you just engage with a really small circle of people, or it can be a time where you're actively looking around to make sure that no one is overlooked, to make sure that everyone is seen and noticed. It's a simple way to give value and honor to others. Let me ask you a question. Does God see them? Does God value and honor them? Okay, If someone isn't sure how God sees them, if they aren't aware of this, 
A great way to show them how God sees and values and honors them is for God's people to see and value and honor them. And that can be as simple as simply recognizing someone and say, good morning, hello. And you can't do everything for everybody in the room, but you can do something for somebody. And one of my challenges would be, uh, if you don't get this kind of togetherness in a church community, it's going to fall apart. One thing I noticed back when I was youth pastor was that I could plan, you name, whatever extravaganza I wanted to, but if the kids showing up weren't cohesive, nothing I did was going to keep them. They longed for a place that felt like home. They wanted an open door, and then when they walked in the open door, they wanted a a place where people would see them, would acknowledge them, would honor them with friendship. And then those casual moments became deeper moments, and it built its own kind of momentum as people like this slowly became people like this. So that initial high becomes, hey, what are you doing for lunch? Becomes, hey, I think I'll sign up for game night. Uh, Becomes any number of things where we're just looking for ways to let people know we see you. God sees you, so God's people will see you. God loves you, God's people will love you. God has given you value and worth and dignity. God's people will extend to you value and worth and dignity. So aloofness, yeah, aloofness is a killer. Uh, So my sermon prep is done for next week. Next week, we're going to talk about how to keep brotherly love. I feel like in some ways, ending a sermon with kind of a negative, like this is how not to do it. Um, That wasn't my intent. Sorry, I just get to talking. So next week will be part two. How do we keep brotherly love? What can we actively do to represent the love Christ has for us to others? How do we open the door and then inhabit that building in a way that honors God? Lord, uh, I'm grateful that you're a God who opened the door for us through Christ. Man, I don't know what I would do um, in my life without the hope, the peace, uh, the truth, the love that I know that you have for us. So I'm grateful, first of all, for Jesus, for his life, his death, his resurrection, for the hope that we have, not just in this world, but in the world to come. But Lord, I'm also grateful that you've given us the church, and I believe you intend for the church to be this this representation of you on earth. And as people see us and interact with us, they see right past us, and they see the God who indwells us and empowers us. May our love be a reflection of your love. May our friendship be a reflection of your friendship. And in all these things, Lord, may we bring glory and honor to your name. We pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.